So I've been focusing on a few people in the Old Testament the past several sermons with the goal of seeing how God treats people in specific situations. And so far we've looked at Elijah and Hosea and Job and Esther and Jonah, Jacob and Leah. And my assumption, my assumption is that God will treat me the same way I see him treat these people when I'm in their same situation. In the words of Stanley Shipp, these people aren't special. We don't need to refer to them as Bible characters. They are people like you and me who just happen to be standing around when the Bible got wrote. And if the Bible were being written today, it would be our lives that would be reading about in the Word. Another thing I want you to see is that God doesn't hide or ignore or downplay the mistakes and weaknesses in the lives of the people in the Bible. He lets us see all of who they are. He lets us see all of their choices, both good and bad, and I appreciate that. We see Elijah battle depression. We see Job struggle with thoughts of being abandoned by God. Esther deals with inadequacy. We see Jonah run from God. We see Hosea stick with God. And today we're going to read about a guy whose name is Naaman. He thought he had it all together. He was a pretty successful guy, and we see him be humbled by God. One book which has been extremely helpful to me in thinking about uh, Naaman is Timothy Keller's book entitled Counterfeit Gods. If you have that book and you haven't read chapter 4 yet, you can just skip reading that uh, because I'm going to save you some time. A lot of what I'm sharing comes from that chapter. So let's start here. I'd guess most of us have a desire to be successful at something. Uh, For most of my life, I worked at being good at campus ministry, leading college students on a journey to know Jesus better. And I wanted people to see me as a guy who knew what he was doing, someone who you could go to for advice and support in the world of campus ministry. And some of you want, you want the same thing. You want to be viewed as being competent at something specific. You may be an artist who paints, and you want to do it well and with excellence. You may be an educator who wants to be respected for your teaching style. You might have aspirations to dethrone Joey Chestnut or the Black Widow from the hot dog eating championships. Do it well. Let's go do it. The pursuit of success can do some crazy things to people because success has the potential to become addictive. And this drug comes in a myriad of outlets. I've known people who become addicted to running, to fitness, and it, and it ruined their family. Uh, people become addicted to gaming, and it steals time away from their wife and their kids and healthy rest. Success can be a drug which becomes all-consuming, But in the end, success can't answer our biggest questions. Who am I? What am I really worth? How do I face death? The big danger associated with an unhealthy pursuit of success is anchoring our security and our value in our own wisdom and work. Keller lays out a few signs uh, which help us see if we've made success an idol. Uh, See if these sound familiar to you. One sign that success may be an idol is the false sense of security that success brings. People... In lower economic classes, they know life is hard. They expect nothing but difficulties. On the other hand, successful people are sometimes shocked by the difficult challenges in their lives. Life isn't supposed to go this way for someone like me. At least that's the thought. A fake sense of security comes from thinking our status will repel trouble that the common folk experience. Another sign that success may be an idol is if it distorts your view of yourself. 
Anchoring, anchoring your self-worth to your performance can be a problem. You may think more highly of yourself than you should. If the phrase, do you know who I am, comes into your head or out of your mouth, that's rarely a good thing. Just because you may be a highly respected accountant doesn't mean your words should carry weight in other arenas. What, what does Joe Namath really know about Medicare supplements? <laughs> what does Pat Boone really know about reverse mortgages? And Jennifer Garner, does she know anything really about credit cards and banking? The last sign that success may be an idol is that we cannot maintain our self-confidence unless we remain at the top of our field. This is a big reason retirement is so hard on people. There's no more accolades for success or ingenuity, no more trips for being top salesmen, no more bonuses for exceeding your quota. Uh, Listen to these words from Chris Everett. Those of you who are my age remember her as the best female tennis player back in the 70s. (laughs) That was a long time ago, wasn't it? Uh, Most, a lot of you don't know who she is. She wrote this, great tennis player. Uh, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I need the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. It's, it's so easy for identity to get lost in what we do. We meet a man in 2 Kings 5 who's very successful. His name, again, is Naaman. He's commander of the army of Aram. Uh, Aram is now known as Syria. And his role seems to be similar to that of a prime minister. He's wealthy and prominent. He's a courageous warrior, and he's honored. In 2 Kings 5, let's check out verse 1. It kind of sets the stage here. Now, Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, and don't miss these next four words, but he had what? He had leprosy. Because of these last four words, Naaman is a dead man walking. In our world, this would be like having stage four pancreatic cancer. Leprosy is a way of dying by inches. His body would swell, his skin and bones would crack and then fall off. And because of this disease, Naaman will always be an outsider from now on. And though we're not told about, uh, told about how long he had had uh, leprosy, my guess is that he's only recently contracted the disease because it would be unlikely for him to, raise, to rise to this level of prominence if he'd had leprosy for a long time. Most of us, most all of us, we want to be on the inside. We want to know things others don't know. We want to experience things others don't get to experience. We want to be on the inside. This is what we see happen with some of our teenagers who work at Bluegrass Christian Camp. You know, you get to have an experience that uh, not everyone has, and and that can make you feel like you're on the inside. You get to laugh with others about stuff that happened, funny things people said, difficult moments shared together. The same thing happens with college students on spring break trips, shared memories, uh, inside jokes. You're part of the group. You have a place to belong. Naaman is missing out on being on the inside. He had success, he had power, he had wealth, but he had leprosy. 
When we pick up in this moment in history, in 2 Kings 5, Naaman is, is on a high. He's just defeated the army of Israel. He's taken captive a few prized people. And the people of Aram felt secure Naaman was on the wall. Not only did he bring home the loot, but perhaps this is where he also brought home a small patch of discolored skin on his hand. Naaman can control troops. He can execute them with precision. He can intimidate and influence, but he can't do anything about this patch of discolored skin on his hand. This patch of skin delivers a strong message to him about reality. All of his brains, all of his courage, all of his military skill, it's all pretty useless right now. Verse 2, now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. God intervenes on behalf of Naaman through an unlikely source. Let me think about this. This slave girl is dragged away from her home, from the people she knows, the people she loves. If, if Naaman is at the top of the mountain, this young foreign slave is at the bottom in a wagon rut. And Naaman is the one who put her there. She is a servant for Naaman's wife, and she told her about a prophet in Israel. His name is Elisha. Verse 5. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter... I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. God is going to use this slave girl whose name is not even mentioned to save Naaman. Now imagine, imagine how this looks. Elisha, the prophet, is an Israelite. Israel is the country where Naaman just invaded, and he may have killed Israelites in that battle. This is a slave girl giving unsolicited advice to the prime minister of Aram. And he listened to her. But then what else is Naaman to do? He's, he's desperate. Naaman finds out what he can about Elisha, and then he heads out to meet him. And he, he sort of humbles himself and nearly follows this young girl's advice. So his first stop is the king of Israel. His name is Jehoram. Naaman hands a letter from the king of Aram to the king of Israel asking him to heal Naaman. Naaman expects to get some preferential treatment because he's carrying a royal letter. He thinks these credentials will, uh, you know, help get him cured. But let's punch the rewind button for a quick moment. What did this girl tell from Israel, tell Naaman to do? She said simply to do what? See the prophet. That's all. Instead of simply seeing the prophet, Naaman packs up a lot of stuff to buy a cure, and he gets a letter from the king, and he tucks away the letter, he loads up the silver and the gold in this regal wardrobe, and he heads out. <coughs> and when the king of Israel reads this letter, he doesn't know what to do. It sounds like the king of Aram is asking Jehoram himself to heal Naaman, something he knows he can't do. He knows he doesn't have the power to do this. This is beginning to sound like a setup to the king of Jehoram. He's thinking if he doesn't meet this king's request another raiding party will head their way. Jehoram knows something about God Naaman doesn't know. In Naaman's world, the gods can be bought. They can be paid off. He believes he can control the gods with good behavior and living a good life and offering a generous 
sacrifice, those things ensure good gifts from the gods. And if you're successful, as Naaman is, that means you've secured the gods to be on your side. But I want to go back to the girl who was a servant to Naaman's wife one more time, just so you don't miss this. She's on and off the stage so quickly, it's, it's easy to, be, to kind of dismiss her. We're not told her name, but we do know she was from Israel. And she was captured and enslaved by Naaman. It's likely her family was taken and sold off, or even worse, they might have been killed. And who's responsible for all of this? Naaman, the commander of the army. It seems like he may have handpicked her to be a slave in his household. And this, in this story, socially, she's a nobody, young, foreign, female slave. But this nobody knows somebody Naaman doesn't know. This young girl doesn't seem to have any need to punish Naaman to get even with him for what he's done to her family. She sees a man who's suffering daily with a terrible disease. And maybe she sees a man who suffered enough. And she says, if only he would see the prophet. She wants to help the one who made her a slave. By mentioning the prophet from Israel, she gives Naaman hesed. I'm sure you remember that word. I've mentioned it a few times. Hesed is when the one from whom you expect nothing gives you everything. And this characteristic of God keeps showing up in places you'd never imagine. She reaches above and beyond her own suffering for the benefit of the one who has caused her suffering. So back to Jehoram's dilemma. Uh, He knows the way Naaman thinks God works isn't the way that he actually works. He knows whatever God gives us is a gift. It's all grace if we receive anything good from him. You know, to me, Naaman seems like a pretty decent guy. But he has no idea about who God is. He believes in who he knows. He believes in what he knows. He believes in how much success he has achieved. He believes all these things will get him what he wants. From Keller's chapter 4 in the book that he wrote. But the God of the Bible is not like that. Naaman is after a tame God, but this is a wild God. Naaman is after a God who can be put into debt, but this is a God of grace who puts everyone into his debt. Naaman is after a private God for everybody, but this God is the God of everyone, whether we acknowledge it or not. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes because he, he couldn't do what he was asked, he was very afraid, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, notice he has horses and chariots, and I mean, he's not coming alone. He comes with a crew to ensure that Elisha knows who he is, and he's not some average dude in the desert dropping by to get an autograph. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, he sent a messenger Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than these waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. So Naaman gets to Elisha's house with a motorcade and he gets to the front yard and he waits, expecting Elisha to emerge impressed, maybe even overwhelmed. Naaman believes he's giving Elisha a great privilege to be the one to cure him of his leprosy. 
And that's not what happens. It's not even close to what happens. What happens is that Elisha doesn't even get up from his desk. Instead, he sends out an intern. And Naaman, again, gets to hear from God in an unexpected way. The intern tells Naaman, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. And Naaman isn't cool with how this whole deal is shaken out. First of all, he doesn't want to be told what to do by an intern. Second, he expects Elisha to come and make a big show of things. And third, he talks about how dirty the Jordan River is. His pride is definitely getting in the way, so he stomps off in a huff. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? We've already made a point to notice the young girl from Israel who made the suggestion to go see the prophet. We've seen Elisha's intern come out and give Naaman's, Elisha's message. Now we see Naaman's own servants are the ones encouraging him to give this washing deal a go. Again, God intervenes through servants to keep Naaman pointed in the right direction. What was Naaman expecting when he heads to Israel? It seems, it seems pretty clear that Naaman expects Elisha to make a big deal out of this because Naaman thinks he himself is kind of a big deal. Naaman gets upset because he's not being treated like a VIP. Do you know who I am? Is what Naaman is thinking which, again, is probably never a healthy route to travel. He thinks he will control this interaction through his network of connections and his wealth. That's the way gods are supposed to work. But the God of Israel isn't like other gods. The God of Israel is not to be manipulated. You can't control him by achievements or success or the size of your tribute. Elisha's, me- Elisha's message in the style, in his style is an insult to Naaman. Anyone can jump into the Jordan River, and that might be the point. Salvation from God is for anyone, not just the rich, the successful, the well-known. This God is a God of grace. You may recall the prophet Samuel's message regarding David. Samuel said, this God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but this God looks at what? He looks at the heart. Naaman could benefit from seeing his success as a gift of grace, and and we would benefit as well. The energy, uh, the intelligence, the opportunities, all of these are a sign of grace in our lives. And all of this begins with God, and all of it ends with him. Naaman has been dependent on grace all his life. He just didn't know it. Elisha's command was hard for Naaman because it was so easy. He wanted to prove something. He wanted to prove himself, to showcase his wealth. He wanted to exalt his own prominence. To get this gift of healing, Naaman had to admit that none of that mattered. This gift would be free. So God reaches out to Naaman one last time through his servants. And they huddle up and they say, we've got to help our boss get over himself. Who's who's going to talk to him? And maybe they threw down some rock, paper, scissors kind of thing to figure out who loses and whoever lost timidly uh, makes a suggestion to Naaman. Who knows how long Naaman stood there on the banks of the Jordan? On one shoulder, he has all this pride, uh, buckets full of gold, a network of notables. And on the other shoulder, he has this simple message which comes from an intern. So here's where we are. 
God sent his message to Naaman through a slave girl. God sent his message to Naaman through an intern. God sent his message to Naaman through a lowly servant. It's like God is saying to Naaman, I will meet you, but I'll choose the place. And it's not what you'd expect. It's nothing spectacular. I want you to meet me at the Jordan. So Naaman goes down to the river. (coughs) He unbuckles his uh, belt. He lifts off his helmet. He um, unclips his armor. And he steps into the Jordan River. And down he goes, just as Elisha said to him through his intern. And Naaman's servants may be lined up beside here, and they're counting. That's one, two, three, four, five. That's six. And then there's seven. And in the filth of the Jordan River, Naaman releases his pride. He meets God empty-handed, and he is healed of his leprosy. God worked through these servants in showing grace to Naaman. He worked through the lowliest and most unsuccessful group of humans to lead Naaman to the place where healing and wholeness occurred. The man who thought his healing would come because of his money and his network or his credentials, this letter from the king, because of his status, this man had to first be humbled, greatly humbled. He had to lay aside his idol of success and be held by the hand of a few servants to find his way of healing. And that's exactly the same way it is for us. In Isaiah 53, we have a prophecy about Jesus that I like to read. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus came to us as a servant, as one who suffered to lead us to our salvation. Not one of us is saved because of our achievements, our brilliance, our success. We are saved because a servant of God held our hand and led us to a place where healing could be found, a place where our brokenness could be made whole, a place where forgiveness and grace rule the day where hope is restored and joy is reclaimed. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and catch this line, and the things that are not. That's us. We're the are-nots. To nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we come to the Lord with our hands full of what we believe will impress him, when we come to the Lord believing he's fortunate to have us on his team, when we come to God with pride in keeping the rules or pride because we're better than others. When we have that thought go through our heads, do you know who I am? When we come to the Lord with our success, he has a habit of showing us a path toward humility, like he did with Naaman. 
a path which will eventually leave us empty-handed, maybe through a financial problem we can't solve, maybe through a relationship problem we can't reconcile, or a guilt problem we can't overcome, an inner turmoil we can't calm. Jesus comes as a servant who knows suffering to lead us home. Here's the last line Naaman drops as he heads back home, a changed man. It's in verse 15. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in the world except in Israel. Please accept now my gift uh, from your servant. I wonder, you know, in your life, what have you learned about the role humility plays in your relationship with God? I mean, how, how is God showing you the fertility of thinking your achievements and your performance and your success will gain you favor in his eyes? What God wants is our heart, not our accomplishments. And getting our heart will require some humbling along the journey. And that humbling may happen in ways and through channels we would never imagine. What will you do with the humbling when it comes your way? The invitation today is pretty simple. Release whatever you're holding on to. Whatever it is that makes you believe you're something, lean into letting it go. Lean into the humbling. Just go with it. Go with it as you admit you don't know what to do. Go with it as you admit you don't know where to turn. Go with it as you admit you've made a pretty big mess of things. Go with it into the waters of baptism, into a journey of repentance, into the confession of the need for a Savior. Let's stand to sing together.